0: And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: And good morning and welcome to the Hump Day edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Lots of stuff to get into this morning, of course. Big news right now, of course, remains the debt ceiling. This is what all eyes are watching at the moment. As yesterday, the bill, we talked about this kind of in detail yesterday, kind of talking about the procedure, and that yesterday it was important for that bill to clear the House Rules Committee. And of course, there were a couple of very staunch no's on that committee. There was some concern it wasn't gonna get through the Rules Committee, it did. Um, And so now it advances to the House where right now there's about 35 uh, kind of the more staunch Freedom Caucus members that have vowed to vote no on this bill because as we talked about yesterday, it really doesn't cut spending or anything else. Now it was interesting, the CBO came out, the Congressional Budget Office came out and made an assessment says that, well, this agreement will cut spending by one and a half trillion dollars over the next 10 years. It's not really cutting spending, it's just the not spending money that you were supposed to spend, that you didn't spend, that you're now clawing back part of it. And so this is always, you know, the interesting thing, of course, the CBO is never right um, on their estimates, ever. They've never been right once. So whatever the CBO says, you can just pretty much throw it out the window as useless. So anyway... Um, the bill is going to hit the House today for a vote. Again, as we talked about yesterday, if it passes the House today, and again, there are 35 no votes. The big question is: is how many Democrat? You know, will there be enough Democrats to vote along with the, um, you know, less conservative Republicans to to advance the bill to the Senate? It will pass in the Senate if it gets through the House. That's the big risk today, of course. Janet Yellen saying that if we don't solve this deal by January 5th. All hell will break loose and we'll default on our debt and it'll be economic Armageddon. That's not the case, but, you know, it makes for good headlines. Anyway, having said all that, that's the big news for today. Of course, we're not watching anything else. It's all about the debt ceiling. It will get resolved probably today. Um, that should give the market some relief. This morning, markets are going to open a little bit to the weak side just because of this kind of don't know what's going to happen part of, The the debt ceiling. So again, market's going to open a little bit weak this morning. At least at least so far. Again, it's still early right now. Futures are down about 11 points on the S and P, down about 29 points on the Nasdaq. Now, yesterday, uh, the markets did open up fairly strongly. Yesterday, sold off uh, during the day. Basically, kind of ended flat for the day. So again, that that kind of move yesterday. Um, may have been kind of a short-term top here. We'll see. A- again, the market needs to take a bit of a break here. It's had a fairly strong advance here uh, in recent days, particularly in the NASDAQ. And if we take a look at the NASDAQ, it has literally gone kind of parabolic over the last you know few trading days. Been a very sharp ramp higher. Of course, this has been that whole AI chase, right? Artificial intelligence. So markets have really, the, the NASDAQ's really kind of jumped sharply higher here. It's fairly deviated from the 50-day moving average. So, again, a bit of a correction here won't be surprising. Also, too, just, for, I mean, clearly on a buy signal, obviously. Um, the, so, the one thing to kind of look at is that the relative strength index is now getting pretty overbought here. And historically, when the, the relative strength index has kind of been this overbought, it's been kind of a point to where there's been at least a short-term correction in the markets um and again the problem with that here is that this is something that you know going back in history every time we've kind of seen these these peaks in relative strength it's been a point to where at least the market gave you a little bit of a pullback here. And so if we're taking a look at this and kind of saying, okay, well, what what should we expect here? A pullback to the 50-day moving average wouldn't be surprising at all, right? That'd just give you kind of a short-term correction. would give you a much better entry point if you've been trying to figure out how to get into some of these tech stocks. A bit of a correction here would certainly give you that opportunity. Um, Nothing wrong uh, with the markets overall. Again, the bullish trends are in place, not just on the NASDAQ, but also, too, on the S&P. The the market remains in in a good, strong, bullish trend. The S&P not nearly as overbought as the NASDAQ. So, again, this is where we've talked about recently that rotation. Um, And and we talked about this in uh, in yesterday's uh, report on the website as well talking about the kind of the technical makeup of the market. And it's been a really kind of one-sided move. It's been these big NASDAQ stocks, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, etc., that's really been kind of driving the market. And that's what's really kind of pushed the NASDAQ higher. But there's another 426 stocks in the (laughs) in the S&P 500 index that make up the same amount of market cap as those top 10 and S&P stocks. Those really haven't gone much of anywhere. And So again, not surprising here because of that bifurcation in the markets that the S&P is not nearly as overbought right now as the NASDAQ. So again, we, this is where we, we've talked about seeing that rotation from the really overbought sectors of the market to some of the other areas of the market that really kind of been under pressure, financials, utilities, real estate, energy, uh, basically industrials, materials, basically every other sector of the market outside of tech communications and discretionary. So again, seeing a bit of rotation there wouldn't wouldn't be surprising here get a little bit of relief uh, kind of in the markets here, and then that will give you a better opportunity to move back into some of those tech stocks, kind of increase your weighting in those areas if you, if you need to. Um, if, you're, if you're very heavy tech stocks right now, this is kind of a good point to maybe take a little bit of profits here, wait for a correction, then buy back into the holdings that you like. But again, you, know, you don't know how big those corrections are going to be. Um, They could be very minor, could be some more of that kind of sideways consolidation that we saw previously, or it could be a bit of a a pullback or a bit of a correction that will give you a better buying opportunity. So in either case, you know, you're probably not going to get hurt taking a little bit of money off the table here only because you've had such a very big advance in a very short time frame. And there's also some other things, of course, weighing on the markets potentially as we get further out to the year. We're going to talk about that when we come back from the break. But. Again, you take a look at some of the economic indicators as well. Certainly don't suggest that the economy is nearly as strong as the markets are implying. The markets are implying the economy is just fine. We're firing on all cylinders. Earnings troughed in in quarter four of last year. The economic data really doesn't support that. So again, that dichotomy between what the markets are saying and what the economic data is saying is it's still got to be resolved at some point. Markets tend to be right more often than not, so we all, we often tend to lean more towards what markets are thinking versus what the economic data says. But there is certainly some risk there we need to pay attention to. So again, we're not out of the woods by stretch of the imagination. So, so so continue, you know, using some risk controls in your portfolios. You know, take some profits, rebalance risk those type of things and again you'll you'll have pullbacks here you know it's it's always seems like in the short term that markets just kind of go straight up and you know it's like I'm never going to be able to get in again it's not the case markets regularly have pullbacks and corrections even in a strongly trending bull market even in 1999 when markets were virtually going parabolic at the end of the year heading up to that point there was plenty of opportunities to get into that trade. You just had to, to be patient. And again, a little bit of patience here will probably pay off. But, uh, but again, as we continue to kind of look at, at the NASDAQ itself, it is really kind of getting far ahead of you know, its position as well. So again, this is just kind of the things to think about here over the next couple of days. When we come back from the break, there are a couple of uh, interesting issues that are coming up that may have some implications on the markets later this year that we're not really thinking about right now. Right, and, and we take a look at you know, what's happening with the economy and, and what you know, how well employment's holding up, et cetera, there are a couple of things that are going on here that might have a bigger impact than what's previously been expected, and that includes the Fed. So we'll get into all of that after the break. Get by the website today. Um, Michael Lewitz's new article on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back.
0: News you can use, delivered at the speed of the internet, at RealInvestmentAdvice.com. Wow, Red. Whatever
1: are we gonna do over this hot, lazy summer?
0: Don't you worry, little darling. We gonna break our money, my lady. Don't let the summer doldrum sap your money's worth. Register for our next Candid Coffee with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso with summertime tips for your idle cash. Saturday, June 3rd, it's our half year financial checkup, breaking your money malaise this summer. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
1: So welcome back to the show this morning of course it is uh wednesday so a couple of things that you know as i said you know right now it's been very bullish for the markets and markets are rising and of course it's a bit of conundrum uh lots of of bearish commentary you know commentary out you know kind of in the world talking about you know housing and all these other type of things it's you know it's. Just, this is all going to lead to a big economic slowdown. It may be the case, right? But so far, the market has pretty much defied that. And you know, if we take a look at earnings, now, operating earnings are always overly excessively bullish. So typically, just kind of throw those out. Gap earnings, that's what we actually report. That's what gets reported to the IRS, ultimately, et cetera. So that has a lot more meaning. That's, that's, you know, gap earnings include all the bad stuff that happens, those earnings troughed in in, in quarter four, and they actually improved in quarter one. So earnings are showing an improvement for companies. Now, let's go back to where earnings come from. They just don't magically appear. Earnings come from economic activity. So economic activity has remained a lot stronger than at least on the surface, right, than people have expected. You know, Now, if you look at the manufacturing indexes, those certainly have been under a lot of pressure. Services, not so much. Services have held up a lot better than, than manufacturing. And this is very similar to what we saw in 20, 2012. We had a manufacturing downturn. Really, it was 2011, my apologies, in 2011 – um, we had a manufacturing downturn because of Japan getting hit by the earthquake, tsunami. And it had shut down the entire production. Of course, we import a lot of stuff from Japan. So because of that, our economy slowed down. We couldn't get, we couldn't get parts for automobiles, et cetera. So our, our, we had a manufacturing slowdown. But services remained very strong. And so we never had an official recession. And so that's kind of the case of where we are today. You take a look at the manufacturing data, New York, you know, Philadelphia Fed index, the Dallas Fed yesterday, much weaker than expected. And, of course, you know, this immediately brings up, you know, take a look at that data. It's, you know, the recession's coming. But yet services data remains a lot stronger. And the difference between today and the 1970s, of course, is that in the 1970s, we were about 80% manufacturing and about 20% services. Today, that's reversed. We're about 77% services. So services have a lot more impact on the economy. So, okay, so let's talk about services for a moment. Where does that money come from? Well, we injected, you know, $5 trillion into the economy and started sending checks to households, which is why we had a big boom in economic growth in 2020, 2021. But we also stimulated the economy with a lot of other benefits, Extended unemployment benefits, child care credits, all these type of things. Some of those credits didn't expire until December. So there's been money going into households through the end of December. Which is why the economy remains a lot more buoyant, 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 than people have expected like, well, why are we having a recession? We've got inverted yield curves. We have, you know, slowing, you know, negative leading economic indicators. Why aren't we having a recession? Well, that's, that's why. We still have a lot of money sloshing around the system. And that's keeping activity going, at least for now. But there's also another form of support. That isn't direct checks to households. And that was moratoriums. So we put moratoriums on spending, things like mortgages, student loan debt, etc. And we said, okay, you don't have to pay those bills. You don't have to pay your rent. You don't have to pay your student loan debt, etc. So now some of those moratoriums are reversed but student loan debt is still out there we st- you know people still are not paying their student loan debt because they don't have to those are still the, the the president has kept extending that deadline on the repayment of those student loans and that's about 1.7 trillion dollars worth of debt that is not getting paid right now now what that means of course is that the money I'm not spending on having to pay my student loan debt, I can spend on other stuff. And it's not inconsequential. The average student loan payment's like 390 bucks. So if you multiply that out by the number of people that have student loan debt in, in the economy, it's not inconsequential in terms of the additional spending power that people have right now to spend on other stuff whether it's experiences, which, you know, what the, the young crowd likes more than stuff, right? They'd rather have an experience than stuff. Older people want stuff, not experiences. We're done with the experience. We just want more of the relaxing stuff. <laughs> so that's, that's adding to a lot of spending, and that's helping. And that's is one of the reasons why the economy has remained a lot more resilient, To the economic downturn that we've had so far. Now, that that doesn't mean you still won't get the downturn, right? You still have 5% interest rates and the Fed right now is starting to rumble about needing to hike rates more. As we talked about yesterday, inflation remains very stubborn. When you, when you get beyond the headline, yes, on the year-over-year basis, headline inflation is falling. But you start digging down into the numbers. A lot of that core inflation data is remaining very sticky. It's not coming down. Housing prices increased last month. So one of the things that we've been looking for to bring down that core inflation was a fall in home prices, but yet home prices ticked up last month. So that's keeping that inflation data a lot more sticky than the Fed would like, right? The Fed wants that inflation rate. And the Fed looks at that core inflation more than they look at headline inflation. They they realize the variability of that headline inflation. So they look look at core more than headline, and they're wanting to get that core rate down. Yes, their their goal is to get the headline inflation down to 2% their 2% target, but that core inflation is very important. And so there's a real possibility. If you take a look at Fed fund futures right now, they're up to 5.35% as the terminal rate. We're at 5 right now. So the markets are already starting to price in. Now, this is the interesting dichotomy of what's going on. The markets are pricing in a terminal rate of 5.35%, which means at least one, if not two more rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. But here's the dichotomy. While the market on the credit side, so the the bond market is pricing in a 5.35% terminal rate, the stock market has been rallying on hopes of Fed rate cuts and lower inflation. So you have a very big dichotomy between what the stock market thinks and what the bond market thinks. Now, they both can't be right, obviously. Somebody's wrong here. the odds are pretty good that the Fed's going to have to hike rates again. Now, will they do it on June the 14th, which is the next meeting? I don't know. The senior loan officer survey that they take, which kind of really talks about lending standards, continues to tighten. And as the Fed had said at the last meeting, they're kind of looking at that bank lending tightening as alternative rate hikes, right? That's going to slow economic growth as well. So, I don't need to raise rates because the banks are going to do it for us through tightening lending standards. But now the Fed is actually talking about maybe needing to hike one more time. So we'll see what happens coming up on June the 14th. But, you know, that could be some fairly hawkish language. We said before, the markets have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves this year. So, again, it's going to be a little bit of a slap of reality here, as we've talked about before. When the, when the stock market rallies, that eases financial conditions, which is exactly the opposite of what the Fed wants because they want tighter conditions to slow down economic activity, bring inflation down. So every time the market rallies, that actually boosts confidence and, 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 and decreases monetary tightening. So it it's kind of works in, uh, against the Fed. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Fed come out, maybe give the markets a little bit of a slap on June the 14th. So as I was saying earlier, where the market's kind of overbought here, might be a good time to just—if you're really overweight tech right now, I've been chasing that trade, it's fine, nothing wrong with it. Maybe want to take a little bit of profit here. That doesn't mean sell everything. That means just reduce some position sizes a little bit. And then when you get a pullback in the market, which you will, regardless of what triggers it, you're eventually going to get a pullback in the market. Then you can buy those positions back, right? You know, add back to them. <clears throat> you know, there's there's no guarantee that you're going to get a big decline, but you could get a decent enough decline to, to give you a, a better entry point um, for those trades. And again, you'll look, look the, the, the bullish trend is clearly there. We're not going to violate that, at least not yet. Now, there are some things, as we'll talk about after the break, and especially with the student loan debt issue, this reversal of this moratorium, which is part of this debt ceiling limit deal that when we kind of we'll dig into some of the numbers about the size of the impact on spending that that could have because that's the one trigger that could ultimately again it's it it is about the consumer because that's where earnings come from so all the all the hope that we're going to have a a recurrence of rising earnings and all this type of stuff is great which has been supporting higher asset prices but again, the reality is that that comes from economic activity. The student loan moratorium could be a problem. We'll talk about it after the break. Don't go away.
0: you listening to The Real Investment Show. And
1: welcome back to the show this morning, of course. Uh, so, just talking a little bit about... You know, potential impacts to the economy. And again, uh, you know, investors are getting pretty bullish on, on the stock market, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, again, kind of an interesting article out this morning from uh, Yahoo Finance talking about analysts are getting a lot more. Strategists are getting a lot more bullish on stocks. Of course, the stocks go higher. Not surprising um, as stocks climb the wall of worry. You know, makes people more bullish. Um, On Tuesday, the S&P 500 closed at 4,205. The index has gained 10% so far this year. In raising their forecast for the stock market this year, strategists cited a number of factors. Um, The the key factor in that is, of course, rising earnings. As I said earlier in the show, earnings troughed in quarter one. uh, Sorry, quarter four and actually improved in quarter one. And analysts expect those earnings to keep improving for the rest of this year and into next year. So as long as that occurs, now, if those earnings do continue to rise, stock prices should follow the trend of earnings, right? So as long as earnings are increasing, stock prices should rise. The The problem is, is that earnings are a function of spending. And that spending comes from individuals. And so part of this debt deal limit was the ending of the repeated moratorium on student loan debt payments. Now, that cost the government about $5 billion a month when we're in moratoriums, but those moratoriums are now set to end on June the 30th, which means that by September the 1st, students have to start, well, not students anymore, they should be out of college, but they're going to have to start making those loan payments on their student loan debt. Now, that's about 40 million Americans have student loans. So you can just kind of do some rough math. If, if you say the average, and, and again, there's the numbers vary wildly. Um, the New York Fed said the average student loan payment runs about $393 a month. That seems kind of high, but maybe that's the case. But even if you just say it's $100 a month, Forty million Americans have to spend hundred dollars a month on student loan debt, so that's been an additional four billion ish a month in additional spending that people have had because they haven't had to make that payment and you kind of do the math from there right if the if, if their student loan payment was two hundred bucks a month or three or three hundred and ninety three dollars a month that's that's a lot of additional discretionary income that you've had that you haven't had to make a payment on, right? So you've been able to spend that payment on other stuff. And, of course, as the average Americans do, they didn't save that $393 a month going, I know I'm eventually going to have to pay that payment. So I'm going to save that money for when I have to start making that payment again. I'll just, you know, be be in good shape. No, they spent it all. (laughs) And now that payment's coming back. Well, they're not going to get an additional $393 if that's the number. They're not going to get an additional $393 from another source to make that payment. They're going to have to cut spending. So, again, you can kind of do the math on what that means. And, and of course, and, again, when you talk about average, right, you can't say everybody's paying $393 a month, right? So if you did, if you did that number, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big number. But again, if you kind of look across the board, you say some have a payment that's more, you have some that have a payment is less. You know, that, that rounds out to roughly about $40 billion a year, give or take, of additional spending in the economy that we didn't have. So theoretically, starting September the 1st, a lot of those earnings that were being generated, $40 billion worth of those earnings that were being generated by companies are essentially going to go away as that money gets diverted back into paying student loan payments. So a lot of these estimates for expanding earnings growth, and again, right now, analysts expect earnings to be stronger by the end of this year, or I should say not stronger, but higher, We should have a higher level of earnings per share at the end of this year than where we were at the peak of the market in January of 2022. Now, that's kind of hard to imagine given what's going on with the economy. And now you lay on top of that the fact that you're going to have to to reduce the earnings expectations by roughly $40 billion a year in spending. Because that money's not going to go into buying, you know, paying for Ubers or paying for, you know, Grubhub or paying for, you know, whatever it is. And a lot of that money is going to impact. And again, you know, as I said earlier, services have been much stronger than manufacturing, which is why we haven't had a recession yet. But a lot of this discretionary spending is going to be directly impacted on services. So the bigger hit that's going to come from the student loan reversal of more of the moratorium and have to make these payments again. Now again, this doesn't start till September, so don't go run out today and say, "Well, Lance said the market's about to crash. This this moratorium ends in June and then payments won't restart till September the 1st." So this is going to be delayed out until later this year. But that's going to have a much bigger impact on the services side of the economy than it is on the manufacturing side of the economy. So it's just something to kind of think about. I'll uh, just read to you a couple of clips from uh, the Wall Street Journal article this morning. The debt limit agreement prohibits further expansion of the payment pause but remains silent on student loan forgiveness. Now remember, the Biden administration has, has already done an executive order to forgive up to $20,000 per student on the student loan program. Now, that's at the Supreme Court right now to determine the constitutionality of that. Again, you know, one of the things that we go back to is that we've talked about the rule of law being very important to the function of capitalism and, and how, how the economy works. You've got to be able to enter into an agreement, a legal agreement that is legal and binding And know that that agreement is going to be upheld in a court of law. So if I make a loan to Brent and Brent doesn't pay me, I can take him to court. The the court says, well, there's a contract right here. Brent agreed to pay Lance this. He didn't do it. Brent's, Brent's guilty, right? So pay. The problem with these executive orders is that it violates contract law. It just says, oh, these students entered into a legal and binding agreement. They knew what they were getting into when they borrowed this money for college or whatever that they borrowed it for. And then they spin it on other stuff. They didn't get their degree. Whatever the excuse is, is irrelevant. And now they're complaining they don't want to pay their debt, right? So we need to forgive their debt. So Joe Biden just wrote an order, says, okay, we're going to wipe out $20,000 worth of debt. Of course, it wasn't long before people that own that debt go, hey, wait a second, I own that debt. They owe me the money. And it got to court. So the Supreme Court is going to rule on this later this year. Um, the problem, again, is that, you know, we'll see what happens with the Supreme Court, but that's another impact to, to all this whole student loan debacle thing. And by the way, none of the student loan problem existed before the Obama administration took, took over student loan. ...as a government program. College costs weren't out of control. Student loan debt wasn't out of control. It was all done on a private basis and it worked fine. As soon as the government got involved, stuff went haywire. So while the debt limit agreement doesn't resolve, and again, the the court will resolve the issue on the student loan debt forgiveness... And of course, all the free stuff army is gonna get very upset with this whole thing. The debt limit agreement says no more moratoriums. They've got to start paying their debt. And this is kind of, and, and this is kind of part and parcel of the $1.5 trillion in savings over the next 10 years that the CBO is factoring in as this five billion dollars a month in student loan debt. So we'll see what happens. But anyway. Um, according to Jeffries, the return of the monthly loan payments present risks similar to the effects of the 2013 fiscal cliff. Now, remember, we talked about this before, is that the debt ceiling deal that we cut in 2011 put together a bipartisan agreement that said, hey, you've got to come up with a trillion dollars worth of cuts in the budget by January 1st of 2013. If you don't, they become automatic. And of course, the bipartisan agreement didn't do it. So a trillion dollars worth of cuts became automatic and that was where Ben Bernanke stepped in in December of 2012, launched QE3 in anticipation of a big kind of economic debacle because of this, you know, this trillion dollars worth of spending cuts that was going to impact the economy. The reality was it was spread over 10,000 agencies and nobody even felt the bump, right? So the market took off screaming because there's now a ton of liquidity and, by the way, we didn't cut spending either, <laughs> There was no cut in spending of that trillion dollars. Yeah, people spend a little bit less, over 10,000 agencies, but we wound up spending more because we kept raising the debt ceiling. Um, But uh, concluding with Jeffrey's statement, this is similar to the effects of the 2013 fiscal cliff when tax increases led to reduced consumer spending. In a note released on Monday, JP Morgan's chief U.S. economist, Michael Faroli, said that the end-of-the-payment moratorium will reduce annual disposable personal income by $40 billion, which will reduce consumer spending. Consumer spending, remind you, is 70% of GDP. Be right back after the break, wrap up the show.
0: daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com.
1: All right, welcome back. Get ready to wrap up the show. Future's pointing down a little bit this morning. NASDAQ's down about 11 points, not much right now. So, again, it's kind of a flattish morning as, as everybody's just still kind of waiting to figure out what's going to happen with this debt deal. That's going to be the next big hurdle. Can it get through the House today? And, again, there's 35 Republicans that have already signed on says they're going to vote against it because this isn't this isn't a debt deal, right? This doesn't really cut spending It's, you know, actually going to increase spending over time. The deficit will continue to grow um, regardless of what the CBO says, because the CBO is always wrong. Um, You know, the reality is, is that government is going to be spending a lot more over the course of the next few years than not. And, you know, this is just the function of government um, as it's become. There used to be a time there was some fiscal kind of responsibility in Washington that that died a long time ago. This isn't a new thing. So, just something that, again, we have to understand that debt ultimately diverts productive spending because if I've got to service debt, then that money, those tax dollars, aren't going to build, you know, dams and roads and bridges and you know productive things in and, and society. Society, excuse me. So the more debt we have, the more interest service debt we have. Of course, higher interest rates increases that debt service anymore. And again, it already takes more than we bring in in revenue just to service the interest on the debt, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, and and veterans benefits. right? Those have to be paid. That's mandatory spending. And this was an interesting point that McCarthy did make. He said, in this negotiation, what do you want me to do? I've only got 15% of the budget to deal with. He actually has more than that. That's just the 15% he chose to work on. Again, nobody wants to cut Medicare spending. Nobody wants to cut Social Security spending. Nobody wants to touch that, right? Nobody wants to reform those programs because basically you won't get elected or reelected if you do. So, again, those are out. Then you have everything else that we spend money on, defense spending, et cetera, right? Education, energy department, so forth and so on, transportation. All those have budgets to work with. So IRS, (laughs) all those have budgets to work with. So there's more than 15% of the budget that McCarthy could work on. He only chose to attack 15% of the budget. And when you only look at the 15% of the budget you're willing to attack, there's not a lot to work with. You can pretty much wipe out that 15% of the budget and not cut spending a whole lot. So again, this is, this is part of the, 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 the rub, right? Is that we know we have a debt problem, right? $31 trillion and counting. Rapidly, but yet we're really unwilling to do anything about it because nobody in Washington wants to stop spending, right? And, and and you don't want them to stop spending either because without them spending money, you are going to have a recession. Government spending matters a lot to the economy, particularly at the pace that we spend money. But again, with that comes that. I'm not now. Look, I'm not. Championing that we spend more money. I'm just laying out the facts that you know if you start cutting a big chunk of government spending, which we should do, right? We need to get back towards a balanced budget. We should be running a 1.5 to two trillion dollar deficit every year. That that shouldn't be the case. But you know the problem comes back to the very simple fact that if you're already spending hundred cents of, the, of your of your revenue just supporting interest on the debt and your mandatory payments of of welfare you really can't run a, a, a balanced budget. There's nothing left to balance. I mean, you know, the government has, despite the fact that the government's got themselves into all this other stuff that they are not supposed to be into, like education and energy and transportation, that's not the government's role. Their job is to write the laws, provide national security, and make sure the, company, the, the country operates, right? That's their job. Everything else belongs to the states. But despite all that, because that ship has long sailed. Despite all that, there's only so much money coming in in terms of revenues. So you have to raise taxes a lot, which, again, won't get you reelected. <laughs> and again, remember this is part of the McCarthy deal is that, hey, this is no new taxes. Fantastic. But you've either got to raise taxes to create more revenue or you've got to cut spending dramatically and virtually every other program in government outside of Social Security, Medicare, welfare, prescription drug benefits, veteran benefits, and interest on the debt. And again, there's not really a way to do that because of the position that we've got ourselves into now As a country. And so that's kind of the frustrating point for people, right? Is that they worry about the debt. And again, I can't tell you how many emails I get. It's like, Lance, I, you know, I don't understand why the markets are doing A, B, or C. I mean, just take a look at the debt. Yeah, the debt's a problem, but it's a long term problem. And what it means is slower economic growth. You know the the days of us generating six, seven, eight percent economic growth rates in the economy on a consistent basis—that's been over for decades. We're going to go back to two percent economic growth, probably less, because of the debt. So we were averaging about two point three percent economic growth from two thousand to, to present. That's probably going to become 1.7 to 1.9 in the future. We'll still be growing, right? But what's interesting about those numbers is is that prior to 2000, if the economy was running at 2% annualized growth, that was considered to be near recessionary. That was not a good thing. Now we're hoping that we can just do that. Like, man, if we can get to 2% growth, we're good, (laughs) So 2% growth doesn't create economic prosperity. 2% economic growth is the borderline of what you call escape velocity for the economy. Above 2% growth, you create economic prosperity because you are now employing more people than you have entering into the economy. At 2% economic growth, you're basically just employing new entrants into the economy. Stronger growth creates economic prosperity. Growth below two percent, you're not even absorbing new interest into the economy, and that's why you're going to have, you know, that's that's the problem. And this is why you have this wealth divide in the country. This is why you have all these other, uh, you know, social issues that are rising. It's really not the social issues. Right, those are the things that were. Those are the the things that we have picked up on. It's like, oh, this isn't fair. We need to go rail against this. This is not fair. It's just the way the economy is. And 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 look, capitalism isn't fair. Economies aren't fair. There's always going to be the super rich. There's always going to be the really poor. There's going to be a whole lot of people in the middle, or at least they're supposed to be. The problem is, is that because of what we've done with the debt we're not we're shrinking that middle part and we're creating more and more and unfortunately when we're shrinking the the middle part we're not creating an evenly divided more wealthy and less wealthy we're just shoving more and more people into the less wealthy category because of slower economic growth slower economic growth you don't have wage growth you don't have the things that you need to create a broad-based economic expansion, And, and this is why we have so much anger and issues and et cetera going on in the social fabric of the economy. But unfortunately, the ability to turn that is probably sailed. Because, again, nobody in Washington, and, again, this, this, debt, this debt limit deal is a, a prime example of this. There's not the willingness to take the hit. McCarthy, be- <laughs> you got to remember, it took McCarthy 17 tries to become the House Speaker. <laughs> nobody really wanted this guy to be House Speaker, but nobody else was willing to step up and take the job. So he's got a very tenuous leadership over the Republican caucus, right? Period. So how this works out today, we'll see. The vote will be this afternoon if it passes the House, which it should theoretically. It'll go to the Senate. They'll pass the debt ceiling limit. We'll go from there. And this will be behind us at least for another year and a half. That should give the market some breathing room temporarily, to at least to have this off the table. The Treasury will be able to issue some debt. We'll get all the federal emergency spending caught up with. Might lead to a little bit of a spike in rates just temporarily. Um, But the last time we had this debt ceiling debate, rates actually fail once the debt ceiling limit was passed. So, again, we'll see what happens here. Yields are down a little bit this morning on the news. So, again, just you know there's some issues markets right now certainly bullish as i was saying earlier we've got to participate with it while it's bullish but there's certainly some things to be paying attention to okay wrap-up show for today i've got more talk i'm going to talk more about the ai situation this weekend and the newsletter um got some interesting stats and, and data on that as well so that'll be in this weekend's newsletter on the website Uh, Get by the website right now, though. Michael Leibowitz's new article is out, is uh, talking about CBDCs. That's on the article today. Of course, I'm Real Science Roberts. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, for everything you need. Since your questions, comments, emails, always happy to help you out. realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.